Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 3. The Confession. In this week's episode, we got to hear the full evolution of Jennifer Jeffley's statements, all the way from her first oral interview, all the way through to her final written confession. And I've got Zach here in front of me with a bunch of questions I see he has written out of his own on a tablet, and then Mike sitting right next to me, of course, with a bunch of your questions on a piece of paper. Lots to do, so let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our first question comes from Lisa. Regarding Jennifer's fourth statement, the two men who planned to rob Catalina and assign Jennifer to be lookout, Bob, what is your assessment of how these two individuals came to be included, seemingly from nowhere, in the fourth statement? Yeah, actually, that's a lot of my questions come from this as well as these two guys. So I'm, I'm glad we're getting to this right away. Yeah, so I, I guess we could have a whole discussion around the two guys in her statement. What did you have? I see you have some notes there. Well, it, I guess backing up a little bit, it's really frustrating to hear that, you know, she names these two individuals mm-hmm. by name and no one else is charged. I mean, you end the episode saying that she was charged, case closed, and no one else was charged. Right. And then, you know, you know, backing up from that, she literally names the two people. Names them and gives them their descriptions, vehicle, pager number. Right. All this stuff. I mean, she talks about Ernest Watson and a guy named Slow, which I think is who she refers to as Tim later. She yeah. first calls him slow, but then she keeps referring to a man named Tim. Interesting how the dialect in a statement analysis, the verb choices. If Can we talk about that for a second, actually? Yeah. And, and we'll get, we're going to get into all of this in, in your notes. But one thing that I want to point out is, is we were discussing before we came in to record, I almost feel like it was a, a production error on my part asking Naima to read that statement. And I, I only say that because she did an absolutely phenomenal job and what in in what we asked her to do was to read that statement in the voice of a 15-year-old, young 15-year-old African-American girl. And and that's Naima's specialty. And so she, you know, she she did that and she nailed it. And it sounds like you can you can you can almost see Jennifer sitting there reading, you know, speaking as she's reading the statement. But the the problem is that's not what was happening at all. They weren't the 15-year-old words of Jennifer Jeffley. 
Those were the words that were typed out by a 45-year-old white detective uh, over the course of two hours that, you know, as she's speaking, he's put and, and, and you can pick a lot of that up. Uh, one, if you compare the first statement to the second statement, the phraseology used, the, the verbiage that's, that's being used, um, and just the, the overall tone of it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you thought about that, Zach, when you listened to it, but when I was listening back to the episode, I thought, man, she did an amazing job and maybe I shouldn't have done that because. Yeah, it felt like it got lost as far as like you almost feel like it's a transcript rather than somebody else wrote. A exactly. Report. So, I mean, she did a phenomenal job, but you feel like it's really Jennifer saying all of those words. Right. And that's and that was the issue with it is the reason I, I asked her to help. I actually asked. Jan, she's Janet's friend. I don't know Naima. Um, but I asked Janet, and Janet arranged it for Naima to read that for us. But it, it it reads like a transcript. And actually, this happened months ago when I when I sent those statements off to be read was back in December. At that point, honestly, I thought it was a transcript. It wasn't until later I figured out that oh wait, this isn't this wasn't recorded. It wasn't this, it wasn't a transcript. It was just it was just the the detective typing out what the statement would be, but. Anyway, I just thought I'd put it out. That was just for me as you know, podcast producer and then becoming podcast listener afterwards. I was, I was listening to it. And I was like, man, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. I'd be curious to know what the listeners thought about that too because, like I said, it really it captured exactly what I wanted it to capture, which was to make you hear Jennifer's voice reading her statement. It just becomes a big disconnect because it actually wasn't Jennifer's voice writing the statement. I think that's a great way to put it. So – Going back to what we were talking about before that, in the statement, if you take it as fact, like mm-hmm. the, the last statement is as complete fact and that Jennifer was there, she watched it all go down, it's still confusing to me why there no one else was arrested because she clearly didn't commit the murder. She's accessory to the murder. She's right. there, you know, and and in a lot of states, and I'm sure Texas is this way, if, if there's a murder during the commission of a felony, it automatically becomes like a capital murder. Right. So I, I understand how they could charge her with it, but how would they not go for anybody else when she names them by name? And that's and that's what I, you know, at the beginning, I can't tell you right now if Jennifer Jeffley's innocent or guilty. Mm-hmm. But what, I, as I said a couple of weeks ago, I think the week Janet was here and we talked about, you know, selecting the case and everything is I can't say that Jennifer Jeffley's for sure innocent. What I can tell you is that this crime did not go down the way the prosecution says that it went down. And also that I don't believe Jennifer's statement. It, it definitely didn't go down like that. And, and so by knowing that, then how did it go down? It seems unlikely that, yep, she was involved and and she helped murder this woman, but confessed to the exact same thing, but in a different set of circumstances. Uh, and we need to get into a lot more statement analysis and stuff, which we're going to be doing. But I just know that it didn't happen like that. And then so what you see with the with, you know, slow and E. Or uh, was it Tim? And I don't remember whose names. The, the names get thrown around a lot. You know, they, they interchange them. Mm-hmm. But no, they, they were never found, never arrested. D- the police did make a small effort to try to locate them. But before they even did that, so th- this case, in the I just happened to, just yesterday, got a 568-page production from the DA's office. So I got a whole bunch of new files I'm going through right now. But I, I, can, I see the report. On October 31st, which is the day after, actually it was you know within an hour of of uh, Jennifer's arrest. You know the crime happened on the 29th. She's interviewed on the 30th. Gives signs her statement at 10 p.m. 
on the 30th and then goes to the magistrate and it's about midnight. So it's the 31st when she finally gets booked. This case is marked in the HPD case file as cleared on the 31st, meaning the case is over. It's cleared, done. Hmm. Wow. And then any supplements after that where maybe they do like, oh, let's try to track down this pager number, see if we can find this guy. On the top of the report, it says the case was cleared on the 31st. It has a clear date on it. And then just like a supplement, just adding to it. Like they kind of just went through the motions. That's really disheartening. So one of the other things about her two stories that kind of caught me off guard was her describing the voice. You know, we talk about a couple of times we talk about the voice, which, right. is, which is the voice that you hear somebody talking back to Eva. Mm-hmm. And, and I find it hard to believe or weird that she would include it in both stories because it, it does seem being that it's included in both stories. And that if it's true, if the if the final story is true, why would you include it in the first story? Because it implicates you in the crime. So if you hear it the first time, when she says it the first time, she right. said she heard it. Well, if that's true that she heard it because E said it and she was standing there when E said it. Right. I don't think you would include it because you're 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 already knowing that. Oh, that right, he right, could right. Say that you were there. Right. So why would you include it? So that's why it kind of seems like it's made up to me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things like that, and that's a good a good point too. Is that yeah? So, so you're saying that if in her first version of events she's innocent of the crime, yes, but says that she heard the man calling out in the woman's voice, mm-hmm. and yeah, so now then then later, so that if she was involved, then she would have been there on the inside. No, she would have known that she was on the inside when that was happening. Yeah, and instead she said she was she was on the outside. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. I think there's. We've got an episode coming as I was going through all of these documents yesterday. I found there are way more witness statements than we were aware of, way more than even Jennifer's attorney was aware of because, you know, we only had what was in the trial transcripts and we just finally got this case file from the DA. And and I'm trying to, I had to just clear off a six foot or eight foot whiteboard from what I had written on it to try to, over the next few days, track and piece together all these witness statements and the timing of all those statements. But as far to your point there, yeah, I agree. I, I don't, I'll say this based on what I read yesterday, I actually think that Jennifer's first statement was probably the closest to the truth. I think that short of her being there when Eva came down the stairs, I think it very likely may be the actual truth. And I'll be explaining that later. And I have a question about her relationship with Youngster. In the first statement, she says it's her boyfriend, but mm-hmm. then in further statements, she just mentions him and mentions no connection. Is, I don't know if, if that leads to anything or if that's just wishful thinking for a, from an eighth grader or, or what that is. I, I think it's just the, the problem is it's not her voice. You know what I mean? It's so, we're, we're, we're looking at these two statements and trying to compare them as why did Jennifer say this here? And then later she said it like this. And that's, that's the big indicator that. It's because she didn't say it. She said it's 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 what and I think I had put it in the episode when I was talking about that first statement that Boyd Smith dictated for her. That what you're hearing are the words that he chose to write down. You know, assuming say in his case that he's being honest upfront and, and not nothing shady going on there. He's just getting a witness statement. It's still she talks to him for two hours and he writes this little narrative down there. It's just the words he's choosing to to pick out of what she said to include into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not her. So so she might have still said youngster the boyfriend later. Okay, you know, or maybe she didn't because they've been talking about it for seven hours and 
uh, Detective Allen knew who Youngster was. She didn't need to clarify that. And, and that might clarify some of the slang that's used too. You know, when they when they talk about the car being tight, and then all of a sudden it says that means it was it was cool or nice. You know, it was a nice car. Right. And that could be that she said that car was tight, and then he goes, "What does that mean?" Right. And she says it, but he just includes it as one. See, some thought. of that stuff really gets my hackles up. That particular incident, right? So mm-hmm. in the again written as though it's a transcript. She says that he saw that car and said it was tight. That means it's it what is it? It's cool or whatever yeah. they said. It's, uh, why? First of all, he knows what that means. You know what I mean? So, so if Jennifer had said, "Yeah, he said that car was tight," I he knows what that means. Unless he was just trying to to clarify for the report. But again, it's not it's not recorded. So we can write down whatever he wants. It just seemed very things like that seem very odd to me. That again, is he like you said? Is he saying, "Well, what does tight mean?" And she's, "Oh, tight means that it's." You know, cool or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever word they said, or that Jennifer was, and also where did all the slang come from? You know, we didn't see any of that in the previous statement. But again, is that just because that's not how Boyd Smith d- dictated it compared to how Wayman Allen dictated it? It's just I would love to have a an actual recording of both of these so we could actually do a proper statement analysis because it becomes really tricky when you don't know what was actually said. Even even if you take the cops at their full word and they're being completely honest, everybody, you still don't know what was actually said. There's no, you know, there's no details minutia there that we would need to to you know try to determine some truthfulness and things like that because we're only just getting a version. It's like a game of telephone. You know, she says it, he writes down what she says, or what he wants to write down about what she says. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, with that whole using the word tight and trying having to explain what it means, uh, that could have something to do with when that term became popular or was why was first introduced, right? I mean, this we're talking about something that happened 25, 30 years ago. 96, yeah. We know that word now for what it means, but it, it might have been it might have been a new thing back then. Yeah, it's a good point, but I I do think that that word. I know you were very young in '96. I'm I'm actually Jennifer's age, a little bit older than Jennifer. It was in high school in '96, and that term was definitely, at least in Michigan, wasn't it wasn't a new term back then. And it's it's also I guess worth noting that um, homicide cops in an urban area, which is which would describe Wayman Allen. He worked in a in an urban high crime area. Uh, as a homicide detective, they absolutely will be familiar with all of the, you know, all of the latest slang because they're, you know, they're, they're constantly interviewing people involved uh, in crimes in these areas. And that, and so they, they pick up, it's almost like another language for them. 
Lauren says, did the Houston PD ever interview Youngster and his brother or Red Rock? Yeah, I mean, well, we heard in both these last two episodes that he interviewed that they interviewed Katie and Youngster that they had went through. You know, they 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 avoided them. They finally caught up to him at their house. Um, it's kind of review. And then when they picked Jennifer up to take her down for an interview, Katie was actually in the car with Swainson when he picked her up. As far as Red Rock, that was part of the files that I just got. Yes, Red Rock and his friend that Jennifer mentions were interviewed multiple times by police, and we'll be hearing more about that soon. Amber says, does Jennifer stand by any of her statements today? Honestly, I don't know. I really don't. Uh, because, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that you know she's now represented by an attorney who doesn't want her to talk about the case on the record right now, partially because he doesn't have the record. I, he's just now getting the same documents I'm getting. So I haven't been, I've talked to Jennifer, but I haven't talked to her at all about her case. So all I have to go on is what I've heard in other interviews, but even that, so there's a Crime Watch Daily episode that features her case, and I've seen what she said there, which is that none of this was true. That's where we heard her say that Eva told her to lie in that first statement. But the problem is, so I, I was watching it again after reading her statements and trying to just make some sense out of things, and I realized, looking back on it, there are a lot of editorial cuts made in that interview. And so I, I don't think that I can really, I, I can't even, I can't even make an assessment on what Jennifer says about any of these, these statements or stories, because we're just getting little snippets that were edited together by crime, crime watch daily. So I don't know. I mean, I know that she denies killing Catalina. She says that, uh, that her first story, she lied and said she was there because Eva told her to, and that she denies what was in that confession statement. Other than that, I don't know. I don't. I don't know exactly. I, I'm hoping soon enough, once her lawyer catches up with everything, you know, has all the case documents and is able to get a better feeling, understanding of the case, that he'll give her the green light to then talk to me about the case. Because I, I would just like to interview her and, and ask her the big question I have for her is what actually happened that morning, because we don't have that statement on the record anywhere. Unless we do, meaning if one of her statements was actually true and with the police not accepting them as true, she continued to change the statement to match what they were telling her, as, which, which we know had happened for sure. I definitely don't believe the last statement. Not to say that she, there wasn't some points of it that are true and maybe even that she was involved could be true, but the, the, the events as she laid them out make no – here's an example. Jack, Zach and I were talking about this beforehand. So if we're to believe this statement, this confession, the police are to believe it, she says that on Sunday night, these two guys come over to Eva's apartment. This is a couple of days before the murders, before the murder. They walk through a parking lot full of cars and get up to Eva's apartment and say, hey, Jennifer, who owns that sweet 1988 Honda Civic parked out there? And that's where that whole the, that car's tight thing comes in. So the impetus of this entire assault, robbery, attack, and murder begins with a late model white Honda Civic driven by a 71-year-old woman catching the eyes of you know, these, these two criminals that, that she's describing. Of all the cars. So, so it wasn't, you understand, like reading that statement, it, it didn't say, Hey, does that lady down there have a car? Because I bet we could get her keys. It's, hey, who owns that sweet Honda Civic out there? And it just so happened to be her. And so they 
have this elaborate plan so that they can steal this this shitty old car. It's not even a nice car that's out there. And then and then that they need Jennifer to be their lookout. And they need Jennifer's role to knock on the door when they didn't enter through the door. They went in through the patio. You know what I mean? None of this is reality. It's not how things work. It's not how things I, – I don't know what happened. But I know for sure it didn't happen the way that that statement says it did. Well, and in that statement, she talks about, I think she says that Tim removes the screen door and lays it on the ground. Right. Which, I mean, that you're not going to do that. Even if even if he ripped it off, you're not going to take it off and lay it on. You know what I mean? Like, right. It was a violent crime that happened immediately. Yeah. Like, that's not something that happened. Yeah. One slipper inside, one slipper outside. Yeah, it didn't. None of it went down that way. Christina says, does Jennifer change from a normal 15-year-old seeing a dead body and wanting to get out of there because of all the blood in her first two statements to all of a sudden a sociopath who wants to go back and look at the body again in the last statement? The last statement just sounds so unbelievable. What do you think? Yeah, I'm curious on your thoughts on that, Zach, too, because I'm, I'm trying to look at some of the stuff we just talked about in that last question, just kind of the practicality, the behaviors of what we're seeing. So I, I try to look at, okay, let's say Jennifer is guilty and it went down the way she said it did. And she was in there when this woman was murdered. And, and, and in that statement, she's upset because that wasn't supposed to happen, right? It's supposed to be a robbery. They end up killing her. There's this brutal murder. And then, then we're supposed to believe she gets out of the apartment. Now, nobody sees her come out of the apartment, right? None of the witnesses see her, which means, and she had already left to use the phone. She could just leave, but instead she, she now hangs around involves herself with with everybody coming over and then she wants to go back inside to look at the body like it, it's just it, it's just really hard to, you know to the point uh the listener here made in the question it's again we don't know what's true and what she actually said in the statements uh, we know in the first one where she's like i went in i checked on her there was too much blood so i got out of there and then next time she's in and wants to take another look i don't believe that but i don't necessarily believe that that that's exactly what she said either I don't see anybody really. I don't think it's human nature unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath like to want to go back in there. And especially right. for a 15-year-old girl to to know that that's in there and then she's going to all of a sudden pretend that it's not in there and follow them in there to find it again. It it just seems really odd. Yeah. Part of what we're going to hear this weekend is um the statements of the people that we know weren't involved. Mm-hmm. So the the apartment manager and the the maintenance man who are talking about the scene and, and, and what Jennifer was doing. And it's, it, it, it's really hard. It's, it's hard to hear what they have to say and think that's a killer, that that's somebody who was just involved with killing this woman. It, it just seems like human nature that they would want to distance themselves from that scene. Right. Or at least the whole situation. Well, yeah. And, and you hear, especially on TV, you hear that, well, sometimes they want to insert themselves in the investigation. That's a different thing than what's happening here. You know, it, it, this is this is a 15 year old girl. If say her statement's true, it's 15 year old girl, no criminal past, no violent past whatsoever, gets wrapped up in this thing, and then the woman is brutally murdered in front of her, and then she is very calmly walking around the scene and wandering back in, and it, with the body, yeah, it just it, it's it, that's another thing that there, there's there's a lot of little nuances here that we're gonna as we start to go through these statements over the next couple of weeks that you're gonna hear that just don't. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking like a very good investigator right now. That's why I keep stammering and checking myself because there's, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm speaking anecdotally, which I always tell people not to do. But there's just a lot of people that see her that's like, oh, she came wandering up and she didn't look like she was upset about anything. 
And she was smiling, even little things like when Detective Allen says, Jennifer came in, she was smiling, said, how you doing? Like he said, she'd almost have to, she'd have to be a psychopath. She knows she's going in there to be interviewed for a murder that she knows she was involved in and not her mother, not her sister, not her grandmother, nor the police officers, Detective Boyd the first day. Nobody picks up on the fact that she's nervous or upset about this. Nobody. Mike says, the fourth confession was so wildly different than the others. It felt similar to so many cases where a suspect realizes they aren't being believed and realize they need to say something different if they want it to stop. Do we know anything about what else was said to Jennifer between these stories? Was there anything she could have said for them to believe she wasn't involved? I don't think that the police were going to accept anything except for her admitting guilt on this. It's very clear from the reports that they, they needed to clear this case. They wanted. I don't think they they saw the case itself as a high priority, meaning a case that they wanted to solve. It was a high priority, meaning it was a case they wanted to clear, and then move on to another case. I don't think there's anything that she could have said. We know we don't know obviously what was said between statements, but we can read in Wayman Allen's reports and his testimony. We can see what we know what he did say, and it's exactly that. So she she gives her first version of the events at the scene. She then goes to sit with Detective Boyd and gives her first written statement, which matches what she said in her first two oral interviews. And then Wayman Allen brings her in on that second day. So that's actually her fourth statement or the fourth time she's been interviewed. Fifth, because he interviewed her again that night on Tuesday night. I forgot about that at the apartment complex. And then so the fifth time she's talked to is on on that Wednesday uh, when she comes into the station. And she's again says, I told you the truth the first time. And she relays that same story. So she tells the same story five times. She gives that version of the events to Officer Peekert on the scene. And then again, orally to Officer Swainson on the scene. She's then taken to the police station and gives that version of events to Detective Boyd at the police station. And then Detective Allen speaks with her at the apartments that night uh, on Tuesday night. And she gives the same version there. And then the first version she gives on Wednesday when she's being interviewed by uh, Wayman Allen again is the same story. So she told that same first version of events. It's not just her first statement. She gave that version of events five times without falter. So the piece of the puzzle that I'm missing is that somewhere at some point there has to be a statement that includes her from somebody. Like, I can't imagine they just all of a sudden pick this one girl from her witness statement at the beginning. So somebody somewhere included her in this. And that's the piece that I want to know. The inclusion came from Eva, as I said. We're, we're, Eva told police, so we're going to get through all of her evolution, but here's a quick version. She does not tell the same version the first five times she speaks. So in the first version, she, she says she sees Jennifer, when she's on her way to the manager's office, she sees Jennifer coming back. She says that Jennifer told her she got a page and she left and then she heard the screaming. That story, she's on her way to the manager's office, sees Jennifer coming back from Janet's using the phone. From there, it turns into not only was Jennifer not there when I heard the screaming, but then she says, and this is where everything breaks bad for Jen. Eva says that Jennifer told her to lie and say that she was there when in fact she wasn't there. And what's really Interesting, as I'm going through the reports, is not only did I was, Eva was that missing piece of the puzzle, as you said, Eva was the reason that Jennifer became a suspect, why she was singled out. But what's really strange is 
Why of all the stories out there, and there's a lot, there's a lot more than you think, versions of events of what happened that day, why the poli- what, what's happened is the, the detectives took Eva's story and decided Eva's story is now the truth. And then everything has to fit Eva's story. They get Kate when they interview Katie and Youngster, their versions don't don't fit. And then it says, you know, then after confronting them with the fact that their story didn't match hers, they changed their stories to match Eva's. And then Jennifer, what Wayman Allen says in the actual in his testimony and the report is, well, she gave a version of events and I told her that can't be true because Eva told us this. And then she changed her story to fit. So so they, they've used, they, they, for some reason, arbitrarily chose Eva's story as the truth and then set the bar there and then are making, they're, they're, they're literally making everyone try to fit Eva's story. And, and that's what's happened. So that's what's being said. Again, right or wrong, innocent, guilty, I don't know. But what, I, what you can see from his own words are that he keeps telling her he knows her story can't be true because Eva said this. So then she changed it even. And then we start seeing it with the items of evidence, too. Remember, the, as I said, the episode, the whole the, the spot of blood on the plastic. And there's all kinds of pictures of it in the crime scene photos of this red spot. And so he tells her, well, what about this? And she says, oh, I touched and checked her for a pulse, got my fingers bloody. And then I went and grabbed that piece of plastic. So now she's explained something that he told her that she needed to explain. Except for he really created a bigger problem for himself because now he's got her saying she's got bloody hands and is touching the plastic. And they ran the test on the plastic and there's no blood on the plastic. That was red paint that was on the plastic. So that, that's what's happening. He's just, he just keeps telling her that she's, she's lying and that he knows she's lying because fill in the blank. And, that, uh, she's gonna, and then she changes her story. She adds in details to reconcile what he just told her. But in this case where everybody's lying, that's why you end up with your final version of, of events is what we have, which is a story that doesn't make sense. Erica says, what do you think about all the details Jennifer provided about people saying specific things and using specific slang? To me, it's hard to imagine making that up. I, uh, well, I assume she's talking about the final statement. Uh, I, I think that's a lot of what I just talked about. I think that there, there's a lot of suggestion from Wayman Allen, you know, they, they, and that's why, it, you know, there was a whole conversation on the fan page. I want to address this, too, because I had pointed out that the statement took 13 minutes to say and it took two hours to type. And there's a lot of theories on that. Well, it could take that amount of time. And the, like what I'm getting at two hours for her to say those words, which means and he's testified that this is true. The bigger picture I'm trying to point out here is that this is not Jennifer giving this flowing narrative. He's typing things in, asking her questions, asking her to clarify things, asking her to explain things. And when she finally does, then he types that into the statement and keeps moving. That's how this thing came to be over those hours. Uh, and so, you know, I just think everything from so the car, the, the white car, the stuff we already we, the, we already because it, it, I'm just focused on that for now because we're going to do a full statement analysis. But I would guess that her probably first version of that statement was something like, well. This guy and this guy came over. These two guys came over and they wanted me to help them rob her. And rob her for what? Uh, they wanted to steal her car. Well, how did they know which car it was? Oh, well, they were here. Were they maybe there earlier and they had picked out because it's early in the morning? Had they already picked out that car? Oh, yeah, they were here Sunday. 
and they saw it. And so they, that, and then you end up with this weird thing, right? That, oh, they, they singled out this car on Sunday. But I think that's how these things come about is, is he's prompting her to try to make the story make sense. And then who are these guys? Who are they? What are their names? I need their names. I guarantee you she didn't say, okay. And I can tell you for sure from, uh, from what I've seen in the reports, she didn't just say two guys' names she knows. Those came from somewhere other than her memory. And, uh, you know, also it's like, well, they need, well, who are they? You must know them. How did they get a hold of you? Oh, they paged me. Well, how did they pay? What did you page that? What's their page? You know, so that's where I think this is, I feel like this whole episode, I'm sounding very confusing, but it's just everything in that statement is being constructed and created from fiction. As far as I'm concerned, I, again, this, the, the crime didn't happen the way she said it happened. And, and so now we're trying to figure out how did, how did this statement get created? How did Jennifer think of the statement? I don't think Jennifer created it at all. I think she was, she was, she was using the building blocks that Detective Allen was giving her. And this is just the, the, the jumbled up mess that, that she ended up with. You know, she could only use the Legos he gave her, and she can only build as much as you can build with the Legos you have to start with. That reminds me of the Jesse Miss Kelly confession. I mean, that's kind of how that was put together, too, right. is the officer would lead him with, well, okay, how did you tie up the boys? Even though he didn't know they were tied up. And then right. he would come up with, well, we tied them up like this. And, you right. know. Same thing with Brendan Dassey. Yep. You know, did anything happen above her neck? Anything happened? Who shot her in the head, Brendan? Oh, Steve did. Mm-hmm. Note say, Steve shot her in the head. When that's, that's, not, but the. Unfortunately, what we don't have here that we did have there is we know that's what happened in Jesse's case because we have the audio. We know that's what happened in Brendan Dassey's case because we have the audio and video. But in this case, the fact that we don't is what's most because we're just we're trying to explain something that we can't possibly know. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Carol has two questions. First, she says, there was a male family friend that beeped Jennifer that morning. She went to a certain lady's apartment in the complex who had a phone that Jennifer could use to return his call. Was this male friend or the lady ever questioned to provide an alibi for Jennifer? And her second question is, have you seen a timeline of events with where each person was and approximately what time? So the, uh, the answer to the first question is, that was Janet Dorsey, whose apartment she went to. She was questioned by police a few days after the arrest, did confirm Jennifer's alibi. I have not found anywhere in the police reports yet where the police actually spoke with Craig Peters. I, he has been, been interviewed by defense investigators, by Crime Watch Daily multiple times, and he has always confirmed that that conversation did, in fact, happen. Uh, I, I'm waiting to see if the police ever pulled the phone records for Janet Dorsey's apartment to confirm the length and times of the call. That would be great as if we had one solid anchor that we could use to know exactly when she made the, cause she says she, she says that she called Craig, talked to him for a few minutes and then he had to let her go. And then she decided, and it kind of gives you an idea of, of Jen's mentality too, I think is where she was at 
maturity-wise, and this could really go either way, but she calls an 800 number for the phone company to try to get Eva's phone turned on in her name. So she's kind of like big girl in it now, right? Like I'm I'm moving in. I'm for I'm for sure running away and I'm going to live with Eva. And so since Eva can't have the phone on, I'll just put it on in my name. Now, again, in one on one hand that seems very mature. On the other hand, it seems pretty immature because she doesn't have a job, she doesn't have money. There's no way that they're just going to flip a phone on in her name, you know. So so that's happening. And then Craig calls back and she talks to Craig again. Again, Craig has verified this, and Craig's trying to arrange like a dinner. To he's trying to kind of play the middleman to get her back in the same room as her mother. Uh, so he's kind of trying to arrange like a dinner to get everybody together. And she talks to him a little. So there's a little bit of a conversation there, and that's confirmed that that happened by both Janet Dorsey and Craig. And again, we just don't have the anchors to know the exact times of those. As far as the timeline of where everybody was at and when. That is what I'm working on right now, and it's, it's how do they put it in in serial with Jay Wilds? That there's it's like trying to chart the course of a dream. That's what it feels like because you just I said you've got say a dozen witnesses that all have say an anchor. Like I'll say so say there's a dozen people that that say they saw Jennifer knocking on Catalina's door. Okay, so so like using that as sort of an anchor to time things out. The problem is you've got Witness one says, I heard the screaming, came outside, and then I saw Jennifer knocking on the door. And then witness two is like, well, I was walking down and I saw Jennifer knocking on the door, and then I heard the screaming. And then someone else is like, well, I saw Jennifer knocking on the door while Eva was standing out there talking to the woman. I saw Jennifer knocking on the door as Eva was going to the apartment complex. And I'm just using this as an example, but that's what all these statements are like. Like there's a thing, there's a consistent thing multiple consistent things that are happening in every statement, but they're never happening at the same time. And so what I'm trying to do is to map all that out and try to create some anchors so we can get a better idea of an actual timeline. Our last question comes from Adina. It was extremely difficult to listen to the episode because of context. Setting aside the obvious manipulation from the police officer, is there corroborating evidence for the final confession? Okay, so that is where, good question, that is where we are, that, that's where I'm at right now too, Adina, is we need to do a statement analysis. Uh, for those of you that are on the Facebook fan group, you see I actually put up a poll to see what you guys want to hear next, because as I'm sure you've caught on through this episode, I'm a little flustered right now because things aren't, I had a map of what I wanted the first eight episodes to look like and what they were going to be, and I just had to throw it out because... We need to find out. We need to do a statement analysis, and the cart is sort of before the horse right now. We can't do a state a proper statement analysis unless we have something to compare the statement to. And what we need to compare the statement to is the crime scene. So we need there. There are things that happened, things that got moved at certain times, and that we can kind of tie into Jennifer's statement. So we're kind of shifting gears slightly this week. Uh, and we're going to, I guess not shifting gears, but from where I had planned to go next. And we're going to break down what we know about the crime scene from witnesses that are uninvolved, witnesses that are not suspects, right? So the, the apartment manager, the maintenance man, those people that just came in to help. And from the crime scene photos, we're still later going to have a very detailed uh, crime scene investigation episode where we go through the, the CSI report and get into forensics. 
But right now, I just want to see, I, I want to break down what the scene actually looked like, what was going on that morning, so that we can then compare that to Jennifer Jeffley's statement. And then, as far as like going back to the previous question that was asked, as far as a timeline, eventually that's where we need to get to. We need to get to a point where we can see what's fact, what's fiction, and then hopefully figure out who was where, when to get a better idea. There's just so many layers to this story right now that we've, we've, we've got to sift through them. We've got to separate fact from fiction. I think that starts with the crime scene, which we're going to cover this week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice.
Was there anything she could have said for them to believe she wasn't involved? Nice job on the uh, emphasis on anything. There. I italicized it. Right. Yeah, it's right there. <laughs> to make sure. 